Hey everybody, welcome to Bedside Matters, the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day. We'll hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm your host, Peter Tilden, joined by Anna Vicino and of course, Dr. David Kipper. And today we have a very special guest. He's an actor, he's a writer, he's a producer, he's a comedian, he's a musician. He's a member of Monty Python. He's a member of the Ruddles. He's won a Grammy, he's won a Tony. And I can do this for a long time and we'll never get to him. Let's say hi to Eric Idle. Hey, hello. Uh, one of the things I'm not qualified is as a doctor. Welcome. I'm happy to answer any people's questions if they want to call. <laughs> Q&A for Eric Idle, but only medical questions, please. Only medical questions in the building. That's true. <laughs> well, you look healthy. You look healthy and happy. Yes, because I've been in Europe. Uh, and Europe makes you healthier? Is that the, is that the Oh, key? absolutely. You don't have to listen to all that rubbish on the news, breaking news every 12 seconds about Donald Trump. That makes you very <laughs> ill. America's actually sick. They've all got Trumpitis. Oh, uh, dear. The disease, it spreads amongst everybody. And the, of course, there is a cure for it, but it's a simple one. So I'm curious. There's so much to discuss about your childhood and how you became who you became. But Bonnie Python did a lot of political stuff. That was It was all punching up. It was making fun of the system. Is it all based on an anger that turns into humor? Yes, I think so. I think it was satire. I think it was at the time. It was satire. Now they just think we were being silly. But actually, we followed a satire boom in England, people like Peter Cook, and we came along afterwards. And so obviously, we couldn't do satire. So what we did was generic types of people you know, medics or military or religious. or So what's good about that is that people still watch it. Whereas if we'd done the real people, we would be like watching a Saturday Night Live rerun and wondering why Gerald Ford is funny. Like, <laughs> does he fall over? You know, but, you know what I mean? We don't know. So it's not topical, but it, that was great for us, for, for, for the fact that it's still on after 50 years, which is a, an incredible thing, really. No kidding. But I'm looking at you. It's really interesting. I always like to see the person that you became. I've read your books. Huge fan of Monty Python, the live shows, the documentaries, saw you do the Olympics. But you wouldn't necessarily know that as a kid, your dad died when you were young. So depression there. And your mom had major depression. And David, we talk about depression a lot. And the fact that they didn't send you away to a place that did not sound like a party. This was not, this was not a place. And yet out of that, you managed to get to a, a college and write that would not seem to, to follow a through line that would be so easy. I think it might, because you might argue that the more difficult background you have, the harder you have to struggle, the better you will do, because you have to struggle hard, and you're not taking anything for granted. You don't have parents who've done things. You know, I mean, there's, there's nothing in front of us. It was only forward. I was 12 years at a boarding school in Northampton, and it was very Dickensian. It was very you know, a hundred yard long dormitory and you were beaten for, for breathing, really. It was tough, but it was, um, I think I learned everything there. I think I, we were also in the military. So once a week, we'd have to be in the military and wear uniforms and, and you know, shoot rifles and finally climb over mountains and things. So it was actually quite tough, but quite, I think in a, in a way, it prepared me for almost any other experience, but especially filming, which is not dissimilar to being in the you wait around forever and then you panic because it's hurry up and wait. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And also being in Python, a bunch of men, males who are very difficult people, you know, and to get along, be able to get something done, I think 
I think I a lot of that was to do. I wouldn't have I've said it before I was 80, but I think I learned a lot from it. And it, it the experience actually helped me get to Cambridge, which nobody ever got to Cambridge in my school before. They went, went to prison. But <laughs> I couldn't get in. I failed the, I failed the medical. But... <laughs> But, but, you know, so it, it was, it was, if you look at it, I mean, you think, well, that was only 19 years uh, and, you know, from, from seven till 19. And I think the thing is this, that the, the theory is that the comedians are made by maternal abandonment. And I don't know how true that is, but you could certainly argue that from my point of view, uh, that was true because, but it's early maternal abandonment. Not like when you're seven; it's more like when you're a few months old, I think, which is well, a couple of years old. Which when my father was killed uh, hitchhiking home from the war, which is the most what? ironic thing you could ever oh my gosh. imagine. No wonder I'm a comedian. That's really funny, isn't it? <laughs> Look, I took through the war from World War Two, from 1941, in the RAF, going around the world in planes, and to get killed hitchhiking home for Christmas. So that was kind of like. Uh, I think it's funny, to be honest. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's actually quite abusing <laughs> in, a, in a cosmic way, put it that right. way. Right. I got it. I got it. Cosmically hilarious. But what about the DNA? I mean, mom suffered depression even when she was around you. I mean, David, what about depression and DNA and 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 growing up with that depression? Do you find that genetically that you, have you predisposed to that or no? People are genetically predisposed. That does run through family lines. But there are also, if you look at Eric's childhood, and I'm depressed just hearing that story, um, and I don't have it in my family, so it could come from odd places. Uh, but yes, it, can, it certainly can run in families. And do, does that plague you, Eric? Do you get that from your mom? I mean, do you, do you have a genetic disposition? I understand where it comes from, because my mother uh, comes from uh, a family up north, and there were five of them. There were four sisters. And I can see now in my siblings, each of them, some of them are bipolar, and many of them are bipolar. Not everybody, not all of them, but in one of the families where there's two children, sometimes there's two children, sometimes there's one or two of the four. So you can actually trace, our family is a perfect one to trace. And I think it came, oddly enough, my, my great-great-grandfather was a ringmaster of a circus. And I think it comes from him or the young woman he married uh who who has the five children so um well you you can actually i think it's genetic i'm sure we'll get that very soon i think we'll have cured this in 30 years don't you yes and we're very close you know with things that we never really gave much credit to the psilocybins and the and the ketamines and things that we found recreational at one point and were poo-pooed as far as research are now bouncing back and i think there is something there is something not only to the treatments but i think we know the brain so well at this point we're obviously going to know the brain better but we're just coming up with so many understandings of these pathways and these transmitters and all the epigenetics that contribute to these mental health issues Yes, I agree, Eric. I think we're going to have a much better handle on this. And uh, also, I was, with a, I was with a group of people, uh, all of whom survivors of cancer. 
<laughs> I said that uh, there was we were four of us having dinner, and I said the great thing about cancer is they never tell you is it really improves your sex life. <laughs> then there was a good applause and laugh as you just did, and they all laughed you're crazy. Uh, but then one of them said, "I think we'll have cured this within 15 years. I think cancer will be defeated very shortly." And he he was a political. Him, he's a lord, and you know he's a governmental person. But I, uh, he felt that very strongly. Well, t two things I think to that point, Eric. One is going to be the diagnostics. We're getting smarter about um, understanding these diseases and catching them early. And another, the therapeutics and the mRNA vaccines are going to play a big role in in attacking cancers. So, well, because they're going to what they do is that they're they identify a protein on a bad guy, the cancer cell, and they can actually take part of that protein and they can duplicate it and make a million copies. And those million copies stimulate the immune system to come fight it. And they're not just fighting the copies, they're fighting the cancer. So this is the theory. And, and they've been looking at mRNA vaccines for cancer over a decade. So it's not new. It's not new technology, but it is, it is coming soon. Eric, to to that point, can you talk a little bit about? I've I've heard you talk about it, about the early diagnosis you got and the diagnosis when you got it, how you took it, and also what you named it. Well, it's um, it, it involves one of your company here today. I was uh, I finished. Uh, we'd had the we did very well with spam a lot, you know, it opened it, it, it on Broadway and it ran for four years and it was fabulous. So one of us I going to write next. So I, I came up with an idea. I thought it would be very, very funny. Everybody was adding the musical to everything. So I thought what would be really funny would be to make death the musical. <laughs> of course, it's funny to us, but try selling that for 20 years, by the way. <laughs> so what I did was I realized that I'm my that it was about somebody putting on this play called Death the Musical. I realized he would have to die. Somebody had to die. Sure. It was it was 2007. So I went with David. And I said, can I? And he took me to a, a Dodgers game. I went, I have to get rid of a character very quickly. What is the quickest way to get rid of a character? And he said to me, oh, pancreatic cancer every time. You, you may only have three weeks. So I said, oh, that's perfect. So we sit down and we watch the game. I've got my answer. So I go back and I, I write that guy dies of pancreatic cancer in the play forever. And we have several readings. Nobody wants to make it. We keep more and more. The songs are great, all of the above. So you then flash forward to 2019. And we still haven't sold this thing. And David, who is my doctor, is very keen on preventative medicine. And he, you know, he, you go and do you know, various things and tests. And he had a test he wanted me to do as an MRI. So I went along to the MRI. And um, I came out and he said, um, just come in here a minute. And, and I, he showed me something on the screen. And I said, what's that? He said, it's pancreatic cancer. And I laughed because it's funny. It's like <laughs> oh, the guy who's writing a oh. play about death musical has found a perfect way to kill off his character. Now he's getting the, from the same doctor. Oh he oh, gets yeah. the same <laughs> diagnosis same. of pancreatic cancer. So oh, anyway, God. so David said, well, look, you've got to, this is, and it was really, we were lucky because he spotted a blood test on, on, on CA-99. Uh, uh, he spotted that an elevated number 
on a blood test, which is why he asked them to add contrast and why they spotted it, and there it was. So what was then? We did very well. We went and, and you know, he found a great surgeon. I was whipped in within about five or six days. It was only 1%. They had no statistics for it. Yeah, my wife said, "How? what are the odds? She said, well, we actually don't have any statistics for this. Yes. You're so early. It's unbroken. It's not spread around. Mm -hmm. It's not, um, you know, so we had, and David said, you have a very, really, very good chance of getting, getting this all out. And indeed we did a few days later um, with a brilliant surgeon um, and uh, they've helped me, uh, David has too, and we were helping work for Stand Up to Cancer. He already does it, Dr. Nissen already does that, but I do too now help him, you know, to raise money to help fund research and, and the various things that we're learning about it. Because now I could alter the end of my play because he didn't have to die. So there's a kind of a good news to that. Wow. Too. Yeah. The rewrite I did this summer he actually gets a reprieve. Amazing. Well, it's good for a number of reasons. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's good that you're going to rewrite the play. Let's put it that yeah. way. <laughs> well, I guess you better end it, you know. Jeez, that is that's stunning. How hard was the surgery? <laughs> it was very easy. All I did was count back with some ten. <laughs> I only made it before. <laughs> no, I mean, people say that, but actually, you are the patient. You do nothing. You have to be patient. That's all you can be. So, it actually was um, the worst was that the guy, like, one of the other doctors wanted me to then get onto chemo. Yeah. And he persuaded me that I should do this because it would improve my chances of survival. By one and four, I think. And I thought it was about anyway. So he he I, he made me do chemo, and it was so bad they put me back in Cedars. So I had to go back in the hospital. Oh boy! Wow. So it's like so I said to him, "Now look, I don't care. I'm not doing any more of that chemo. I'd rather die than do chemo at this stage yeah. of my life. Uh, I want to go to Provence." He said, "Go to Provence. It's better than chemo." For sure, that's their slogan. <laughs> Been my slogan ever since. Go <laughs> on, better than chemo. <laughs> um, what brilliant marketing! I don't want to gloss over because this is a medical podcast. You said the CA ninety nine test is this a test that's regularly ordered by doctors? Because uh, it sounds like, holy crap! Yay, Doctor Kipper orders that. It's 199, CA19-9. Great. And can you just ask your doctor for that? And why would you? Or is it something like? Yes, you can. And what's interesting about that test is that this is a marker in the blood. When I mean, we have several biomarkers for cancers that are somewhat specific, but not totally. This one is specific for the pancreas. But we generally use these biomarkers to follow treatment. So let's say, Eric, had the cancer, went through chemotherapy, and his numbers were elevated, we would use that initial number to see if his therapies were bringing down that biomarker. So a lot of doctors don't do this as a diagnosis. I do this because I think that if you establish a baseline when people are healthy, and God forbid something does happen, or that number starts to climb, then you have, you have reason to look a little further, like with an MRI of the pancreas in this case, and just make sure everything is okay and have that baseline. And in this case, unfortunately, and Eric's wasn't all that high, but it was high enough that it made me a little suspicious. Actually, what what happened with Eric, if Eric, please 
correct me or stop me getting too much information, but Eric had a little spot on his kidney on the scan, and his pancreas on a CT scan didn't show up at all because it's not sensitive for the pancreas. So because he had a spot on his kidney, that was going to either be a cyst or a cancer. So we went in for an MRI of his kidney to, to differentiate whether he was in trouble or he had a benign issue. But as he was climbing into the MRI, we added some contrast so I could get a good look at his pancreas, given that test. And that's, that's where it showed up. So there was a good news, bad news uh, to this uh, get information stream for Eric, where the good news was you don't have kidney cancer. But then there was the bad news part. You got the other one. I mean, no, it was a brilliant spot, actually, because because of his hunch right. uh, and because of putting the contrast in, he discovered that I was I had pancreatic cancer. And had we not done that, I would have been walking around a walking dead man, really. Um, yeah. Why would it would then next have shown up, David? It probably wouldn't, right? Well, it would have shown up with symptoms as it started growing more, although... The pancreas is a funny-looking little organ. It looks like a dog. It's got a head, a body, and a tail. And two-thirds of Eric's gland, Eric, if I may give specifics, his body and tail of his pancreas were, were packed with cancer. So there, th there wasn't going to be a long time between that evaluation and Eric having symptoms. And what would the symptoms be, David, just so people know? It's abdominal pain, nausea. Some people, it's just weight loss and fatigue and sort of failure to thrive. But it's they're dramatic symptoms. They don't respond to simple things like antacids and uh, things that we give people for these generalized symptoms. And Eric, you were asymptomatic. You weren't experiencing any of those symptoms. No, no, I was absolutely not. It was just, it was that that led David to be suspicious, which led to him, you know, really saving my life. It was unbelievable. I mean, he said to me afterwards, in fact, quite recently, he said, you know, if we'd left him for two weeks, you, you, she wouldn't have been in to see that doctor. Well, that's my next question for you, because it sure seems like, I mean, I've followed your career. You've always seemed like a dude with boundless enthusiasm, and I love that about you. But like, how, do you have like a renewed lease on life? Are you like, holy crap, I, I did it. No, no, I have a, it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's like I had a reprieve mm -hmm. and I feel like that. And it, it's good about everything. I don't get angry with people. It's easier to say, you know what? I'm kind of lucky to be here and I've got this little period extra. Right. Uh, and I'm going to use this as well as I can and not, you know, piss around and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I, I was lucky. I was for very, very fortunate. I mean, I really was. Oh yeah. And, and, and um, you know, so I, I, I have been lucky and I feel lucky and I feel that you should share that luck, which is why I, I work with David and, and, and Dr. Nissen on, on raising money for, for cancer awareness and stand up to cancer, all that. Um, uh, that had not been part of my life and so it is now and I like that. Uh, so I think I was, yeah, I was a lucky, I was very lucky. I was very, very lucky. I was reading in preparation for today about your friendship with George Harrison. The interesting thing about him, you said he was your mentor because to this point, he was always prepared to die. He would always say, Eric, calm down. You're going to die. Absolutely. 
That was the, that was the one of the first things he ever said to me. And he said it all the time. It was the thing he was preparing for his death all the time. He said, you know, you can have all the money in the world. You can be the most famous people in the world, but you're still going to have to die. And that's when he came out from the Beatles learning. He knew that from there. And then so I was with him at the end. I mean, we saw we were here and uh, and he was he was comfortable. He didn't want to. He thought he was he had been spared rebirth because he was Hindu. And that was a good thing. I said, I'd do anything to be reborn, you know, but that was the only things we ever disagreed on. And, you know, apart from anything else, he paid for the life of Brian movie entirely. Wow. So he, he was a remarkable fellow, George. He was, I was very lucky to meet him in 1975, and we were very close friends right till the end. And I was, I was with him at the end, which is kind of interesting, uh, you know. I would think. And well, you were bonded. The bonding seems so obvious that you're in a group where everybody's a team and you have to fight as a single guy to get in your comedy. And I've been in writer's rooms where they will not laugh at your joke. It's just no. it's stoic. They'll yeah. let you in. And George was trying to pitch songs to Lennon and McCartney. Exactly. He came to see us on the set of um, The Life of Brian. He said, how are you doing? He said, oh, you know, it's hard to get on the camera with, you know, John Cleese and Michael Palin. He said, imagine how it was trying to get into a studio with Lennon and McCartney. What a wonderful relationship. You were also really yeah. close. With, it's sad with, with Robin Williams, too. Very, very yeah, close. Yeah, yeah. Robin. Robin was great. I met him in 1980. We were very good friends. Um, and uh, again, you know, that was so sad at the end. I tried to get him. We were doing, we were doing O2, which was a reunion of Python in 2012. And I kept trying to get Robin to come. And, he, you know, I nearly did for the last show because we had a little celebrity bit that we do. But then he said, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then, so that was so tragic. It was yeah. so tragic. I, I wasn't really, I wasn't keeping my eye on the ball because I was directing this thing as well as being in it. So um, I hadn't really realized just what, in, what a bad mess he was in. Yeah. And really only Bobcat. Goldthwait was keeping him alive, yeah, really. She, he was kind of, it was a very, it, that's, what's it called? Um, Louis Body Dementia? Yeah. I mean, that that was not really known. And he was being treated for Parkinson's, which didn't help. Uh, so it meant him very paranoid and very depressed. And he couldn't remember any words. It's for Robin, you know, master of the words. was was just an awful thing to see. I miss him every day. I, I, he's a, he was a... We shouldn't have let him go that young. With Louis Body Dementia, what's the awareness? Like, does Robin, when somebody has it, and you can answer that, too, because you knew Robin, did he know that he was losing it and couldn't remember? Or does it slip away and you don't notice it? He would know that he was losing it. Um, and people cover up. And But again, the dementia with Louis Body is common to a couple other things. People do get this in Alzheimer's. People, It, it is a form of Alzheimer's. People get this in dementia, just vascular dementia. Uh, and with aging, we lose this. And so in the beginning, people think, well, I'm just going to compensate for this in, in ways that I can. But then it gets to a point, like Eric said, where he was, here was a guy that was a wordsmith, and the words were gone. So, wow. And you were aware of it? You, you're reaching for the word, and you don't know the word, and you know that you can't reach the word? Yes. Wow. Yes, he didn't want to come on stage and be funny, and I, I should have that should have rung a bell with me, you know, much louder than it did. But you know, we were doing a show, and it was, it was you know, crazy as it was. But uh, yeah, 
it was a very, very bad thing that actually. It's very sad and very, and very awful. Uh, it's a live person, such a really great live wire human being that brought joy to everybody, you know, and very nice fellow, really lovely person. Yes. Uh, and this was just unexpected and horrible and, and, and a really bad thing. Hey, Eric, before we let you go, can we do a little bit of a lightning round of questions for you? Sure. Okay. Ever choke and need the Heimlich? <laughs> I, no, not yet. No, I haven't done that. Ever have to give the Heimlich? No, no, I wouldn't. Not yet. No. Is there anybody that you could single out that you'd like to give the Heimlich to? I like to people I wouldn't give the Heimlich to. <laughs> <laughs> I pass it by on the other side. Say, I don't know how to do it, honestly. <laughs> What's the healthiest thing you do? The healthiest thing I do is swim, oh. and I I eat well. I've been there. I haven't eaten meat since uh, forty five years, so uh, wow. I'm a pescatarian, and that exercise is obviously very important. Ripping, what's the least healthy thing you do? Oh, um, probably comedy. <laughs> the most dysfunctional thing. <laughs> um, what do you do to relax? Like when you want to shut down. Oh, I play guitar. I have lots. I have lots of guitars, and I've actually I counted them up because we had to move recently, and I had twenty-seven guitars. Wow! I know, and I had three in France, so that's thirty. So I, you know, but you know, when you get to my age, they're lovely things. They're beautiful bits of furniture. Right. They're yeah. all different, and they, they. Well, you got a guitar. Be honest. Sorry, I've got them. I love them. I love looking at them. I have a beetle bass that somebody got me, and I just love looking at. It. It's, it's a beautiful. Yeah, they're, they're lovely things. I only ever have. Uh, Acoustics, because I think they're very beautiful, and I, I have handmade ones. And I, the other thing is, I read a lot. I read a lot. Um, what changed you? If there's a thing that you can put your finger on, what changed you during COVID? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm I'm used to being locked up because I'm a writer, so um, it was actually not much different from my normal life. I stayed home. My wife was home. Um, you know, I do my regular writing. Maybe we, we were very fortunate. She had a lovely house, you know, pool, and we could walk the dogs. And the, so it was actually not. We were very, very fortunate. Um, but you know, you, I think you, I think I miss people the most. Right. I would have to say I was glad it was over, but I, I don't mind being. I have a, you know, one of the things I like about France is I, I have a place where where I can be alone for months. If I want to write, you know, and nobody bothers you. They don't come up the drive. That'd be a nice way. Yeah, it's, it's fabulous. When do you usually write in the day? And in the morning. In the first, morning. first thing I wake up. As soon as I wake, I start to write. It's awesome. And then on the last thing is brain chemistry. David talks about brain chemistry all the time. I'm curious. Are you, um, you overthink stuff or do you just let stuff go? Just let it roll? Well, I thinking is a large part of of what you do if you're creating something like a musical, you know what I mean? There's so much to think about um, that if, for example, I was in France, I had a, a whole month of just nobody came. I could I could wake up at any time of the day or night, and if my brain was awake, I'd carry on writing. And when it was sleepy, I'd stop and sleep and nap and eat. But I could, it was, it was your subconscious takes over. You don't stop thinking. It just solves some problems you didn't realize 
in the morning. There it is. It, it, there's the solution. You can't. Sometimes you can't believe it, but it's done it for you. So you know, I. That's not overthinking. That's using your brain. Right. Right. Properly. So David, is he more serotonin or more dopamine? I think Eric's both. I think Eric's a good hybrid where he has some of those brain chemistry issues that he seeks stimulation and some of those serotonin transmitters that seek calm and, and introspection. I think he's a, a really down the middle kind of guy. Yeah, it feels so balanced. It feels so balanced. Eric, do you have any questions for, for David while you got the doctor on? No, I, I think I've, I've, I've seen him quite recently, but I want to see him again because he's a good pal of mine. So uh, I'm sorry about the Dodgers. That's all I can say. <laughs> and next time should take me, you know. <laughs> yeah, don't That's ask fair. anything other yeah. than a hot dog. Yeah, and, please, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and don't ask me any health questions at the exactly. game, please. <laughs> yeah, stay out of it. I just want to say, you know, I've known Eric a long time, and, and some of the things, one of the things we didn't talk about is what a, amazing family person he is and how committed he is to his friends and he's a wonderful friend and a, just a wonderful person i'm blessed to have eric in my life well you know what you did to me i won't be here <laughs> i'll be a whole podcast short that's true yeah, that's exactly who would we true. be talking to i know. You know that would be just not good just for each us. other and we yeah. wouldn't like that eric thanks i mean i don't need you how do you express what you what Monty Python, what your humor, what your brilliance and your music has meant to people for this long? I mean, it's yes. incredible how enduring and how powerful you're, you're yeah. known and beloved globally. Not that many people have that. Eric, here's something that I think is worth bringing up. What is the number one song at funerals in England? Well, the number one song at funerals in England is always look on the bright side of life. Um, for the last 20 years. But um, <laughs> I, I think since the Queen died, I think they've gone back to more hymns and things. I think they've gone <laughs> which is a terrible Regular thing. dirges. Yeah, I think she would have liked. I sang Always Look on the Bright Side to her at the Royal Variety Show. And she That's really, amazing. I made her laugh, so it was great. And and was it awful for you sending people around to funerals to collect the royalties? Was that a, a, an awful thing? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's it, isn't it? Uh, 20 years of being number one and not a single penny in royalties. You know? but, well, but that would be, yeah. so, excuse me, Mrs. Gleason, I know you recently lost your husband, but there's a matter of dollars for the song. As soon as I can get people to charge for funerals, we'll be in business. All right? <laughs> That'd be the best. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you, Eric. We could thank you forever, but I'm sure you have stuff to do so oh it's been a pleasure been nice talking to you all thank you eric love you all right david love you too see you soon all right okay see you okay. soon thanks thank a lot. you bye thank you bye bye the information on bedside matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice the information on bedside matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.